Welcome back to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Join me each week as I have a conversation with someone who has a unique relationship to death and dying, all in an attempt to understand and cope with my own and our own inevitable mortality. Firstly, I want to thank you all so much for coming back to this week's episode. It really does mean a lot to me. And I can't wait to get into this week's interview, but first, I need your help. In order for this show to succeed, I just ask that you go and leave a rating or review on the platform that you get your episodes, as well as sharing this show with anyone you think might benefit from the conversations that we have here. Talking about death is painful and can be really challenging. And what I'd like to do here is create a open, safe place for people to listen and understand and hopefully learn a little bit more about how we can cope and understand our own ending because it's the one thing that every human has in common is that we will all die. And instead of going into that experience with fear, I'd like to go into it with understanding, comfort, and some compassion. And without further ado, I would like to dive right into this week's interview where I sit down and chat with Carrie, a mortician, a funeral home director, and a pretty popular YouTuber. And in this week's episode, we talk about grief casserole, how you can't actually become a tree when you die, and how cremation isn't necessarily more environmentally friendly than being buried. Hello, I am Carrie Northy. I am Carrie the Mortician on YouTube. I am a licensed funeral director, embalmer, mortician, undertaker in Michigan. For 20 years, I've been licensed. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am excited to chat with you as I've never met a mortician, funeral director, embalmer in my life. And uh, I think it's a really unique and interesting job and you know, identity. So can't wait to chat more about that with you. I'm the least scariest one you'll ever meet too. So I feel like, <laughs> I feel like you have to have a, a specific type of like personality maybe to li- like work in the postmortem reality or the realm. You know, I think there is different varieties of personality, like it, depending what you do. And there's people who love the work, but don't have the personality, social skills, you know, social skills, you can't really teach it's kind of there or not there. And so you get people who do the full spectrum of the job and shouldn't be doing part of the job because they're not innately good at it and can't be trained at it. But yeah, it definitely takes the personality (laughs) of some sort. I'm sure. And you're a lot of time meeting with people in a very unique time in their lives when they're trying to organize care for someone that they hopefully cared about. For sure. Yeah. Right on. So let's talk a little bit about why, how did your journey lead you to this career field? Like not a lot of people just wake up and say like, I want to work with people that have passed away. You would be surprised how many people actually want to do that job. So I'm surprised by how many people are led there, but I was 16 and needed a job. And my mom worked at the funeral home um, as her kind of second career. She was the aftercare coordinator. And so she met with families all throughout the stage of, you know, the walk through the process. And she's like, well, you're 16, you need a job. You want to work at the funeral home? I was like, sure. You know, like I can do that. So I greeted people, visitation, sat up chairs, broke down chairs, vacuum, clean, typed paperwork on typewriters, because that's what we use at funeral homes. And just kind of helped facilitate everything day to day there, did evening work and weekend work. And um, back in the day before 
cell phones were a big thing. I mean, I've been doing this since 94. And so it was more pager style and you had somebody physically at the funeral home answering phones as long as you possibly could. So the funeral director, especially small town could get away and do their own thing for a little while before they had to take the phones at their home for the evening. So that's kind of what I did. And it just grew. And in college, I veered in different directions and then ended up back trying this. So and loved it. Cool. So it seems like from a young age, you were kind of just around it and it just kind of became natural. It was. I never, I can't remember a time where I wasn't really comfortable at a funeral home and comfortable around the space. You know, I'll walk through the funeral home in the dark. I don't need to turn on all lights at any of the funeral homes I go into because I freelance. So I go to different ones and different spaces and am not concerned by what most people would think is the creepiest, you know, atmosphere ever. And uh, it's kind of comfortable, the quiet of the funeral home when it's a little dark in there and stuff. I love it. So yeah, it's always just been part of, I guess, what I do. And later, once I became licensed, I actually found out my grandpa had been a funeral director for a while, which I never really knew growing up, or I never paid attention to the information. So it's kind of in my family, but I never followed the path because of him or anything because I never knew it. Interesting. So kind of like a secret family kind of uh, generational thing. Okay. So speaking of licensure, how do you become a mortician? How like how does what's the process? Is there schooling? Is there clinicals? Is there a test? All of it. Um so each state is a little different. So it depends. Um this is one of the things I wish every state was the same across the board with funeral stuff, because it's also different. Michigan is a dual license. So you are a mortician or you're a funeral director and an embalmer. So you do the front of the house and back of the house is kind of how I explain it. And it's one license. Um, So like for me, uh, I had a bachelor's degree in psychology before going to mortuary school. Each state has a set of prerequisite classes that you have to take, and it depends on the state what they are specifically, but it's going to be a dabble in all sorts of variety of topics and subjects because we run the gamut on things that we have to know a little about chemistry, anatomy, um, sociology, you know, psychology, accounting, all every literal every topic public speaking statistics like all these crazy things and so you have to get all these prerequisites and then you go to more choice school it's a solid one-year program just the more choice school part but it's about two years of prereq one year of college you get your associates you can get your bachelor's degree i got my bachelor's degree in it and then you do an apprenticeship and it Depending on the state, it's either six months or a year. You take your state boards, your national boards. So it is a, it's like a blue collar, white collar job. You know, you're learning on the job, but yet you do have to pass all this huge, you know, board thing, which is insane um, along the way. So it's a little bit of all of it. You can't really teach in a classroom a lot of what we do, even though we try to, but it's so hands-on and needs to be trained to people in different ways because everybody does it a little different. So walk me through, I think I'm more so as an ER nurse, I'm more so interested in the embalming or preparing of like human remains or what do you, I don't know what we, what do you guys call them? Remains or patients or clients? Yeah. I deceased. Deceased. Okay. 
Yeah. And so what, what is that process like from the time the, you know, the person is brought in from, you know, the hospital or from hospice or from home? What is that process like? I mean, it's going to be different with everybody, honestly, um, in and every funeral home, but the gist of, I mean, they're brought into our care. We get permission for embalming if we're going to embalm. So let's say we're going down the embalming route and we're going to have more of a traditional with a viewing and service or such. And so they go to the preparation room. They may go on a cooler for a while. We do not use freezers. We're regulated how cold it can get. People think we throw them in freezers and hang them by their feet or whatever the, you know, stories are. None of that's true. Um, so they may be in a cooler for a little while, but then they go to preparation. So the kind of the course of the embalming part of it, they're naked on a table. There is a drain at one end, a hole of some sort, which goes to either a sink, a looks like a toilet, but is basically your sink, um, that kind of auto flushes. It kind of goes down on its own. These are used in all sorts of different kind of medical scenarios and things. Uh, and there's always water running water on the table as well. So the person's going to be sanitized, their nose, their mouth, their eyes, all cleaned, sprayed out their body sprayed down, especially the last few years, we are clean freaks when it comes to people coming into our care. Um, I think we've been reminded more so of the need for sanitation, you know, when we get a little lax we were reminded very clearly of it. Um, so the person's cleaned and then we're going to set their features, which means closing the eyes, closing the mouth, closing the eyes. We use a little plastic disc. It looks like a hard contact where little pieces have been pointed outward. So it makes almost like a little prong and it's not to like stick into the, I don't know, it sounds barbaric, but it's just enough to like hold the eye closed because we want to hold the eye closed. So you just put it in like a contact that holds the eye closed because eyes open because we dehydrate when we die. And so a natural look of somebody is mouth open, eyes open, kind of this gaping when you look at somebody, that's your natural, how you would look if all your muscles relaxed and then closing the mouth. So some people use what's called a needle injector. It's a little, almost looks like a little gun. It puts a little metal tab with the wire on it into the upper and lower jaw. And then you tie that wire together. I have never used that method. I've just never been comfortable with how it looks. And so I suture the mouth closed, not the lips or anything. It's just holding the jaw together. And that's, that's it. But that part of it is so critical because if the lips are wrong and the mouth is wrong or the eyes are wrong, that's what defines a person, especially when you walk up. So that part, some people can get too sloppy with too quick with, and it throws off the looks of the person completely, but it's the most critical thing almost that we do. Um, and then we're going to mix fluid that we're going to be injecting and embalming is a temporary preservation. This is meant to just preserve the person long enough for a funeral service, for a viewing, for whatever we're having before they're buried. It's not meant to keep the person looking the same for a hundred years. It's meant for a week or two. It's meant for a month. It's meant for short term. And that's where a lot of people go wrong with thinking that this is going to keep my person perfect forever not the case. So we use formaldehyde, glutaraldehydes, all sorts of different chemical mix-ups, um, which is a whole nother topic, which maybe you'll ask me about, but that's kind of the big, you know, scandal, I guess, within the embalming part of it is a lot of people hate that we use chemicals and such, but, um, so we raise vessels 
our main vessels that most embalmers want to use is your carotid artery, which is up in your neck. And then, and it's a replacement system. We're using a machine to push in the chemical into the artery, and then the blood is going to be pushed out the vein. And so we open the vein and it comes out. So it's not draining. It's just pressure coming out, pushing in one to come out the other. And it's a lot of times, mostly water, water is the vessel for this chemical. Formaldehyde is a gas. And so we want to get it in a liquid form into the body. So it goes out into the tissue to preserve. And so once that's done, which there's a lot of components to that, but that's the simple part. And then um, we aspirate. So we use a trocar. It looks like a needle where you would get your blood drawn, but it is two feet long. That's hooked up to a hose, which is hooked up to a suction. That's punctured into the abdomen. The abdomen's where decomposition starts. It's where your bacteria, all your nasty is. And so we want to get out as much of that fluid and things that we didn't get during the injecting as possible. And then we put fluid directly in there to kind of stop all of the rampant bacteria that's starting to fester. And then we clean the body again and put on some dead person lotion for lack of better words, on the face and the hands. And then we would go to when the time came to dressing and casketing and cosmetizing and things. So kind of that's the nutshell of the answer, I guess, for you. What is the weirdest outfit loved ones have put their deceased in? Is there any like cool costumes or anything just kind of wacky? Oh, I have seen clowns dress as clowns, um, lingerie, um, songs for granny, you know, things like that. That's not like too, it's such a funny thing. Cause people always are like, what's the weirdest, what's the most unique, what's, and I'm always like, that is so specific to what you believe is unique and weird because at this point, like whatever, like you just see so much, I think after a certain period of time, yeah, you're always going to be surprised, but People do still bring in things and that's like, do you think that was a good choice? Because that's strapless. We're, we're you know, we're not going to put a strapless dress on probably, or um, just, you know, like they know what their loved one look like and they bring things that they know are not going to work with how they looked, but they don't think about things the way we do. So our first reaction is like, mm, really that's, and then, but then you have to step back and think, okay, they're not thinking like we are. They're thinking, how do I want my loved one who in my mind is alive and in front of me kind of dress? Um, and so we have to kind of, you know, change our thinking. And people ask all the time if they have to bring pants. And I'm not joking, like it is a lot because they think that the casket comes up that lower end closes up above like the waistline so that we don't put pants on them. And I'm like, no, 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 it closes at the crotch line. So we would be showing to their undies and they're like, oh yeah, that's not good. And I'm like, yeah, but people don't, people don't know what they don't know. And so it's easy from our side where this is what we do all the time to think, gosh, why don't you know that? And so we have to like step back and go, okay, okay. This is not, they're not professionals and they don't do this every day. And absolutely. And if you're not doing it every day, like me, when you said people ask if they need to bring pants, I was like, well, do they? Like, cause I, <laughs> I you know, I would think from my memory of seeing just a few loved ones when I was a kid pass away, like great grandparents, I cannot remember if how high up the, the, you know, the door or the opening was. So I'm like, do I need pants? Good to know. So <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for 
if I ever need to. It's amazing. I do a continuing ed class for funeral directors on, because I get so many questions. Like I have a perspective on like probably any other funeral director in the world because of my online and my YouTube and how many consumers I interact with every week. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and the amount of the same repetition of questions. And so I do a continuing ed thing on, you know, the 10 most asked questions and topics that people ask about. And to us, they seem like, what the heck? But these are things people want to know. And some of it's ignorance teaches ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance in a bad way, but hey, dead body sit up and that person teaches it to their kid and that kid teaches it to another kid. That doesn't happen. 120% that will not happen ever. Nobody's ever set up. It does not happen. But this, these comments get passed down and these beliefs get passed down. And it's like, that's how it is. You know, it just, that's how longevity of these things happen. But again, it's our perspective as funeral directors, but it's what the general consensus of consumers think and believe because they're not in tune with death care even though it's more common of a topic now and people like you are seeking information because of anxieties and lifelong questions and not being exposed to things when they were younger. So I love it. I love people wanting to learn. Yeah, I'm. this is exciting for me just because I think most of my family, which I do want to get into your preferred or uh, your most advised method of, uh, you know, burial or do you cremate or they have, they're doing those pods now where you can like become a tree which I'm kind of I would love to be a tree or be under a tree or be part of a tree um so you know I would like to talk about you know cremation too because that's something that you know I think more is more popular now just because people are kind of like pulling away from the belief of like graveyards and burial and especially like environmental things which I think you were kind of touching on with the um, different preservative chemicals and like is that the issue as is people are saying like environmentally there's some concerns or kind of what what do you think when it comes to like cremation as well like, what do you recommend as far as a I never recommend anything but um, cremation is becoming more popular I think for a variety of reasons one is cost for some reason it has been driven to be the low price lowest way to dispose of a human body is a simple cremation, which I hate, like absolutely hate because people are driven to choose something not based on choice, but based on cost. And I wish if somebody wants to be buried and not have their body cremated, that they could choose that and it would be the same cost. And so that is a problem within our business and a problem within how things have been driven cost-wise. So I think that's one reason people are choosing it. I think a second is because of how mobile families are. Families that are so spread out. They're they're not in one town with one cemetery, with one place that everybody is going to go to, especially, you know, young families with kids, things like that. When they lose a child or lose someone, they're more inclined to do cremation in the end because we want to take our kid with us. We don't know where we're going to be in 10 years. Why would we want to, you know, bury our child or why would we want to bury our parent here if we're going to be somewhere else? And so it's about mobility of taking your loved one with you wherever you're going to go. Um, also, people can scatter. People can, there's so much more of variety and it allows people to make death more convenient for them, which I'm sorry, death is never going to be convenient. I know that's a shocking thing, but people try to make it more convenient with the um, time, unconstrained time of cremation. 
So that I think is another big reason. Environmental might be, but cremation and burial leave about the same environmental footprint. So you're not saving the environment at all by cremating someone. You're using a lot of resource to burn that person. And so you're not, you're not saving any resource if you do that. Um, people do have a problem with embalming chemicals and people are shocked when we say that when you're embalmed and blood is draining everything, it's going in the same drain that you used at home, all goes to the same place. But I visited a water um, facility and they said in parts per trillion, you can't detect formaldehyde or the chemicals we use, but you can detect hormone therapies. You can detect household cleaners. You can detect all these other things that are going down the drain. So that's kind of always my rebuttal. I'm not saying that formaldehyde's great. I have a lot of people that I know that have had esophageal and throat cancer because they're breathing in chemicals all the time. So they're not great for you, but we are using just as horrible things freely in our homes and putting in our bodies. So, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a great argument with me, but um, there are a lot more things too, with, you know, you can take cremated remains and bury them with a tree and such, but there's a lot of that information out there when it comes to that, because initially when products came out that were like, Oh, be a tree. Well, when you put cremated remains with a sapling or any other vegetation, it will kill it. The pH is over 11 of cremated remains and it will starve all vegetation. So all of a sudden everything around it is going to be dead. So you have to get the products that have pH balancers in them. So that way your tree will grow or your flowers will grow or whatever you're putting in will grow or else you're just killing, <laughs> killing everything by putting in someone's cremated remains. There's not yeah, it's crazy that because there's such bad information. And then there's the whole burial pod that goes around. I don't know if this is what you're referencing, where you put your actual body under the tree. That's not a product. That is nothing that exists. But every couple months, it pops up. This was a thing years ago. It was they this couple from, and I can't remember if it was Norway or Sweden, or it was somewhere in Europe. They um, won a contest by coming up with a product that could be a thing. And since it just keeps circulating as if it's something you can do, but the practicality of that thing is so, for lack of a better word, dumb. Like you could not take a human body and fit it in there in almost any, like the person, you go into rigor mortis about two hours after death. It doesn't free up until about 48 hours after death. And so you're like trying to take grandma who, even if grandma is 90 pounds, five feet tall, and you're having to bend her in half and smush her basically into like a suitcase sized item. Then you're having to take this thing with this tree hanging out the top on what kind of mobile item, like a back of a truck, a trailer, and it looks as if it's a bit translucent. So then all I'm picturing is grandma's face smashed up against the side of this thing because she's just in there. And it's like the practicalities of it are so illogical. Um, but And so we hate when this regurgitates. And it does every couple of months. It's like, oh my gosh, I want to be the tree. And I was like, no, you cannot be the tree. Like that's not practical. Um, but green burial and like natural burials are are a thing and there's more space for those and you can you can do things more natural ways 
And you can plant a tree over graves in some places, just putting you in a pod below an actual tree and carrying all that somewhere is just not really happening. Could you go into a little bit about green burials? I've been, I saw a few videos about, you know, where granny passed away and I see she's wearing like a beautiful shroud and she's kind of like in a cardboard, like composite box, maybe like a, you know, something that can decompose rather quickly and there's flowers all around and it looks really beautiful. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So it's not like in the area I am, it's just starting to be a thing like middle America here in Michigan. Um, catches on, you know, slow things start at the coast and work their way in things start more progressively out on the West coast and then kind of move around. So it's not as big of a thing where if you go out to like Oregon, Washington, this has been happening big time, a lot home burials, you know, home funerals, things like that. But so green burial was this kind of initial term for something. And now it could mean a variety. It could mean just no embalming. It could mean using a shroud. It could mean no vault. So the vault is what the casket goes in, in the ground. It's not a law in a lot of States, but cemeteries require them. And that is the concrete box around it. So sometimes they will allow you to not have that but you can do a shroud burial inside a vault to be a little more natural, or you can do what's called butter dishing. So a vault is more common, the bigger base, and then a lid that goes on top where you can take the base and flip it upside down. So that's setting on the dirt and there's no bottom to it. And then the body lays on the earth and the vault goes over. So it's still maintaining the integrity of the grave space from above, but the person can regenerate back into the ground. So there's, there are ways to do things a little more natural, or if you get into a true official green burial certified green burial cemetery space, you know, you have your grave hole, you can come in and just a shroud, you can use like a bamboo casket, you can use wicker, something that is natural. Cardboard does not decompose in any good amount of time. So it's not considered green burial certified. Um, It is a little more natural than bigger caskets or metal caskets, but it's not green burial certified at all. And so you would use lowering straps and lower the person in and you throw the flowers in. I had never witnessed this until I buried my dog at home. It was the first time I had kind of watched the whole motion through of us taking care of him ourselves, wrapping him up, binding him up, taking him out, digging the hole, lowering him in the ground, throwing him flowers, kind of taking control of the process. Now, the problem with our society is a lot of our society has become a very hands-off society when it comes to death. You're going to pick up grandma. You're going to cremate her. We're never seeing her again. You can give us our box or you can just go bury her where she needs to be buried and we're done. We're never taking part in anything with grandma again. She's just disappearing, gone. And that's what a lot of people do. So you have kind of two ends of the spectrum where you still have some people who are 
very hands-on caring for their loved ones, very hands-on caring for the dead. And then you have the other side, which just, they just go away and they need to be gone. And we're not going to stop our lives. We're not going to focus on them. We're never going to do anything to commemorate the fact that they are absent from our lives. We're just going to go on and ignore it. You get into other cultures and they're beautiful where they always take care of their loved ones. They come in and bathe their loved ones. They will wrap their loved ones. They are part of the whole thing because that's what you do with your generations and generations take care of generations. And it's beautiful to watch this. Like I have goosebumps talking about it because I love watching different religions and different cultures coming in to take care of their loved ones in different ways because it's so polar opposite of seeing a family who basically like signs off on their loved one and they're just gone. I like the, I like the latter. I like the generational thing. I mean, I'm not sure where those practices and, and things got lost in you know, North American culture, but, you know, I, you know, when you look at South America, Central America, the way that they worship and like celebrate their loved ones and they kind of have parties and they have processions and it's just really beautiful. I mean, is there a way that you think maybe just with talking about how it's done in other places, how like maybe we can translate that too? Because I think our like post, like our death beliefs and care here are just so like standardized medical, you know, check the boxes, do this. And we don't have the spiritual component of postmortem celebrations and funerals are really sad and everyone cries and wears black. And like, I feel like I told my family, if I die young, when you are all still here, I want like rainbows and fun and like a party. Like, I don't want it to be all black and, and tears and, you know, casseroles. So yeah, I think, how would you recommend, is there a resource where people can kind of look at these other practices or what would you recommend for people that are interested in that? There really isn't. I mean, there's there's stuff out there. You can always look into things, but you have to want to look into things. I think what is neat to watch right now, um, our, the funeral business is the slowest evolving, changing business literally ever. It just takes forever for any new things to really become legal for them to really happen like water-based um water-based disposition that ends with like a cremated remain is a thing it's it's called alkaline hydrolysis and it's a great thing but it has been over 20 years and by golly this thing cannot take off like it takes forever to make things legal and so it just takes forever for anything to change. And so if you look at historically, you know, it was burial, burial, burial. And then this thing cremation came along and then slowly this cremation took off and okay, we're going to trend towards that. And so things just cyclically, cyclically, what is that word? Change as they go along. And it's, it is about what we learn from generations before, but let's say you have, um, you know, grandma was a traditional burial person mom has decided to do direct cremation. And then the daughter says, gosh, when mom died and wanted direct cremation, I feel like there was something missing or we didn't do something. So now I'm going to bury my husband. So I would like to do the best of both and maybe have a viewing followed by cremation and have a party on my own where it's not about, you know, whether we're using the funeral home for everything or not, it's more about kind of where in the process do I want to be and what makes me most comfortable. We have people who die and put on their family, like, this is what you're doing for me. You're not to have a service. You're not to have anything. That's kind of like condemning your family. What, what do they need? They're the ones here who you're dead. Like, your emotions at that time aren't part of the equation. I'm sorry to say, like, what does your family need? So don't put on them that, you know, you're going to haunt them if they have a, 
gathering for you. Like, let them have a kegger if they want to have a kegger, let them do what they want to do. And so that's, that's a little bit of a problem. But what I've seen is during COVID, we experienced the options were taken away. We could not have funerals. We could not gather. We could not fully come together as a family. Our options were completely taken away to the point like you couldn't see your loved one. You couldn't, you could not do this. You could not do this. No, 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 no. All day long, all we did was tell people no. And then it got to be, well, you can pick your 10 favorite people and they can go to grandma's funeral. Well, what if there's 12 kids? What, who were her favorite of the 12? Those are the only people that can go. And so we kind of went through this whole phase where we now have this whole grouping and generations of people that for about a good solid year and a half went through restrictions, went through the view of not getting to do something for their loved one. And a lot of people say, oh, we'll do it down the road when things are, you know, better or safer or not restricted. A lot of people never came, never cycled back around for that loved one. But we then had a spike like I've never seen in traditional burials and in visitations and in viewings. And it's still going on because people were told, no, they couldn't do something. The options were taken away. It's almost like it's cycling back around from what I'm seeing that people are now like, yes, we're going to gather. Yes, we're going to do this. Yes, we're going to do this. Wonder what they would have done if that time period never happened, if they would still make the choices they're making now. But it is almost like it has swung the opposite way hard. And we're dealing right now with the baby boomer generation. And they are a do it my way, do it unique, do it different. You know, we got to be better and bigger and different and find your own path. And oh my gosh, if he's having doves and I'm having eagles and I'm doing this and, you know, just, it really is about that. And so you see people trying to find in their own little unique way. And oh my gosh, we have to have food there and we have to have a wine toast. We nearly have to. And it's like, goodness, people have never done this many little extras that I've ever really seen. So to me, it is like people are now wanting to do stuff because they're able to where it'll be in a couple of years, who knows, but this year of after kind of things were on major lockdown has been an interesting, just social experiment almost in how much people want to celebrate life because they were not able to. I think people are just now realizing how important experiences and connecting and like being present are so when saying goodbye to a loved one it's like now we get to have these we want to be present in saying goodbye to our loved ones because through all of 2020 and 21 people didn't get to say goodbye they didn't get to mourn they didn't they didn't get to hold their hand they didn't get to be part of the burial and I think now it's just like what can we do because we actually can and I think that's really important. And I hope we don't lose that, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, when we get back to more quote unquote normal life. But anyone who lost somebody during that time and anyone who wanted to attend a service or a visitation or was not able to be comforted or was not able to go comfort, it's more ingrained in them almost now to do that where, yeah, there's a visitation I need to go or you know, I didn't get love when my loved one died. 
You know, I didn't get to be hugged. I didn't get anybody to come see me because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't even go to the graveside, you know, because for a while it was literally zilch. There was nothing. we Nobody could do anything. And so there's people who are like, by God, I'm going to go to every visitation and every funeral. And I am going to be the support person because I didn't get support. The problem also with that is the emotional thing that that does for some of those people because every funeral they go to they're reminded they didn't get a funeral and it's almost like they're going through a funeral for their loved one again and again and again and again and again and then it does it leads people back to like okay maybe I should do something and and you know people are doing all sorts of things gatherings and parks and parties and luncheons and all sorts of different things now which is the beauty of a burial without a funeral is that it's kind of like cremation where you do whatever you want later. And it doesn't have to involve the funeral home and it doesn't have to be this cookie cutter thing like it used to be. I mean, we used to way back, you know, 30 years ago, you sat down with a family, you'd say, okay, what day do you want visitation and what church or what day do you want the funeral? And that's what, and pick out a casket. And then here's your, here's your funeral in a box, because this is what we do. And now it's just all over the place. And people will say, well, what do people normally do, Carrie? You know, and I'm like, there's no, there is no normal. There's no normal at all with what we do because there's such a variety of options within the funeral business now. And that's kind of fun. Like it's fun to help put together something or to offer options or offer suggestions once you get to know a family and you get to know how, what the loved one liked and their, I don't know what makes them kind of quirky and, and stuff. It's fun to help find little answers for them. Yeah. I think it's good to not have the copy and paste uh, death. Like you were saying, it used to just be, this is what you did. You go here, you do this, you picked it out, cookie cutter. Everyone gets the same, you know, everyone has the same ride pretty much. And I think that's cool that there's just other options that give people a more personalized experience where they don't just feel like they're kind of being herded through this experience where it's like, this is what you do. This is how you agree. This is what you go on. You have the casserole, you have the wake, you do this and you move on. The casseroles are good though. You can't, you can't, you can't knock the casseroles. Church lady casseroles are the best things ever. It's a great, I think it's a great kind of tradition as well, because the people that are grieving, they probably forgotten to eat or have been very busy or very tired emotionally. And maybe none of they're all visiting from wherever they're from. Like you said, families are no longer in one place. So we, we will always support the casseroles. <laughs> so my niece was killed. Oh gosh. 2000 and what year was it? 17 or 18. I'm, I don't know why I can't remember right now, 17 or 18. And, um, that is like the one thing my family still talks about still like reminisces about, Oh my gosh. Do you remember the church group that came over the night that it happened and brought us the ham, like no joke. And then, Oh my gosh, do you remember how good it was when they brought over the taco basket? Because it wasn't like a casserole. It was like everything to make tacos. And Oh my gosh, do you remember this meal? And Oh my gosh, do you remember? Like it is such an integral part of what you're doing. And you think sometimes people don't want to eat, but then sometimes you, you just eat because it's there and it's good. And it also allows people to come in and connect with you in moments throughout the whole process. And sometimes they bring you food so they can have a moment with you because they want to get in and hug you sooner. And they want to get there to, you know, talk to you and see what's going on. And um, one thing I learned a long time ago, um, 
this guy had taught us was that, you know, when you first tell people that someone has died, you're, you know, you make your first phone call and you're like, so-and-so died. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, when's the service? And it's like, I just found out they died. Like, like, I'm just sharing it with you. It's been five minutes, but it's such code. And it's interesting to tell people this and like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like people saying, when is good? When's the service going to be is code for when can I come with your permission to hug you or to be with you because it is a point where people don't want to intrude on you and they don't want to, you know, come into your private space and, um, infringe on that moment, but they want to be with you. And so that's kind of the important reason you gather in some capacity is to give an opportunity. And I always tell people if they're like, well, we don't really want to have visitation or we won't want to do this. And I'm like, so when is that happening? Because if you don't provide the time in some capacity, they will make that time happen. So next time you are at the grocery store buying milk and you don't want to talk to anybody, Mary Smith is coming up to you and Mary Smith will give you a hug and she will cock her head to the side and she'll say, how are you doing? I've just been thinking about you since Bob died. And all you were trying to do is buy milk, but because you never gave her the opportunity to come and to pay her respects and to give you a hug, she's going to do it. And there's going to be 30 other people at least that want to do that because you never gave them time. So you're going to go through that moment over and over and over for months, rather than giving a two hour period at some point, like that's what it's about. It's not about coming and seeing your dead husband per se, it's about you. And it's about what people want to do for you. There's a statistic years ago, someone said that 75% of people that go to a visitation don't know the deceased, a coworker of a kid, uh, you know, friend of a grandson, a teammate or a teacher of a child. You've got all these extended people that didn't even really know the person. They'll come in, they'll go talk to who they want to talk to and they'll leave. They never even go up to the casket because they don't even know the person. And it's crazy. I don't know if 75% is the actual number. Who does this, you know, who did the study, who knows, but it is really something thought provoking that these are not events for the dead. They're really for the living. And that's why we gather. That's why we get together. We get to talk about the person. We don't have to focus on the death. And I tell families that I'll be like, people want to know the death story, redirect them to the life story. Say, have you seen this picture of my husband? This was the funniest moment when they say, oh, you know, what happened that day? And you're like, you know, let's talk about this instead. You can redirect them. Like, that's okay to do. Because if you spend that two hours telling every person the car accident story or whatever, the you know, the end of the cancer story or the heart attack story, whatever it is, you have done nothing good for yourself. But when you open the door to the stories of life, like the whole atmosphere changes, the whole event changes, and you refocus, like you said, to the the 80 years that led up rather than the one hour that was at the end. So there's things to refocus on. I think that we can do as society and we can do as family and friends and help when we go to these events and such. That is such a great bit of information because I think 
a lot of people that don't want to have the viewing because they feel it's like really painful or they don't want to have to like confront people. But like you said, two months down the road, you could be at the car wash and having to relive your grief for someone who didn't get a chance to comfort you. And in reality, I think also like viewings are important for people who loved your loved one, but aren't close enough to be in that tight knit family of gathering like around the care. So I think it just gives everyone a chance to not only people that love the loved ones that are still here, but it also gives other people a chance to kind of come communalize with the people that, you know, maybe it was a coworker of of Bob who passed away and he hasn't seen Bob in 20 years, but, you know, they were best friends at work before they retired. So it gives, you know, Bob's buddy a chance to come and just kind of also have that moment to like, you know, be a community with, with Bob's family. And I think that's important as well, but yeah, that's I did not understand the importance of viewings and uh, like that, you know, communal like aspect of coming together. Well, going to visitations can literally change friendships. They can change relationships. When you take the time to drive an hour to go to your friend's grandma's visitation or um, my friend or former coworker, her dad died and the visitation was like two and a half hours away or three hours away. And I just got in the car and drove and went to it just so I could go hug her and say, and I think that completely changed our relationship and just put us in a different category because she's like, you literally took your day to do this for me. And I'm like, but this is important to do this. And, you know, you tell people you will always be surprised by someone that shows up that you never would have thought you were important to them in that way for them to take that time for you. And it can change a friendship and a relationship in such a wonderful way. Sure. Visit, they, it can change in different bad ways too. when people don't show up that you thought would, but it just puts a different spin on your interactions with people and your view of what your relationship means to people, I think. And there are, there are, there's people right now I can think of that. I just go by going to visitation changed our connection and put it on such a deeper, more intimate level, I guess, which sounds so hokey, but it does, it can change it. So that's taking the time and doing that for someone, even if it's, oh, it's just her grandma or, oh, it's just her aunt go like it's an hour of your day or it's two hours of your day just go it's so important I love that yeah I I definitely think it's definitely very important to connect with people in that way I do quickly want to circle back to something that you said earlier and then we'll kind of move on to like the front of the house kind of stuff like maybe like how you help people um, plan and get things organized Um, but you said something about people wanting to do home burials is that legal? Can I just like bury my mom out back or how, how does that work? <laughs> like what, what does that look like? Is that a thing? So it is, it's not as big of a thing here in Michigan. You know, we're middle America is just a little far behind. We're true. We're very old school. Um, but old, old school, we, you brought people home, you know, when they died, if they didn't die in the home, you brought them home. That's what a parlor of your home was for. And that's why it's funeral parlor because, you laid out the person in the parlor, surrounded them by flowers so they didn't get too stinky. And that's where they laid for a day or two for everybody to visit. And then it moved to a funeral home eventually. 
but to bring your loved one home and to keep them at home. So it depends on your state, your county, your city, your town. It depends all upon the rules and regulations. So like here, you would have to get special permission. It would be all about the zoning and all about, you know, the laws and the regulations and all of that behind it. And then on the deed to your property is going to have in my mind, it looks like a big red stamp that says dead body that just goes on like the deed to your land. But you have to very clearly mark that there is a dead person buried on your property. A lot of townships and, and zoning, you can't even bury an, your pet in your backyard. Legally. <laughs> it's illegal, but people do, it, people do it all the time. People scatter cremated remains illegally all the time and don't care about that. But a dead body is definitely different because there's permits and they have to be filed with where someone is, is buried. And so it definitely just takes, you know, following the legal channels and such, but you can, as long as you get permission. Okay. Interesting. And then you said that there's also some type Sometimes uh, regulations on cremation of spreading of ashes. Uh, okay, so I can't just spread my mom out back. So you can spread her on your own property, but you have to have permission from the property owner. So people who spread in the, the ocean, who spread on the beach are breaking the law if they don't have a permit. The beach is not just public. It is owned by somebody. The, the ocean is regulated by the Coast Guard and by people. So you have to have permission from these overseeing bodies of governing whatever to get permission to do that. Happens all the time. People do it all the time. They go in the forest and they spread somebody around. Um, I did a video, I think it was last year, my brother and I, when we just talked about this yesterday, actually, um, we were walking down a path at this park and there are some flowers setting out, like funeral flowers. And I was like, well, that is a dead person. They they had spread and had a little something, put flowers, spread cremated remains, and they were all just laying there. Like you can see bone fragment and know it's cremated remains. There is now in this rock on this big wall engraved the person's name that they have come and basically destructed property by engraving this person's name. Why this spot is pop, you know important to them. But I'm like, so you put a person on the ground for everybody to walk over, which is not okay. Like maybe they got a permit, but I can't imagine that these, that, you know, in this spot where we were. So I think it's just odd that people think you can go just like dump a body wherever you want to. It's just, it's odd to me or in any manner you want to like, um, a guy sent me a video or not video photos. Uh, his friends scattered somebody off the back of a motorcycle, you know, blowing all over the place, hitting cars back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible idea. People, these are, these are terrible ideas. You know, people who throw them out of airplanes and stuff. It's like terrible, terrible ideas. Like this is not good. That seems kind of, um, I don't, yeah, I don't, not good, I guess. You know, you know, people don't want to have ashes on their car tires and windshields from Greg that we threw off the back of a motorcycle. I don't know. It's it's almost like, well, that's not a person anymore. It's like, well, it, it really is um, sort of a, still a person, still bone fragment, still still there, not just ash and, you know, blowing in the breeze. They're falling and they're, they're there. But there's so many cool things people have done, though, which is kind of fun. When it comes to cremated remains, but can you make a diamond out of 
ashes. Yes. You can make diamonds out of anything carbon-based. So you can do hair. You can take hair and put it into cremated remains. Um, there's a company called Eterniva, um, Eterniva, I always say it wrong, out of Texas. And they are a good legit company. You always have to look into the, legitis- the legitimacy of them. Uh, and they use a small portion of cremated remains, press them and make them into gems and diamonds. And it's pretty, pretty cool. Well, if I can't be a tree, maybe I'll be a diamond. There are options. There's options. Awesome. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what you, how you help people like front of house. Like, it seems like that's a very intense time for people. Like what kind of things do people not probably aren't aware of right now? If a loved one dies, like what kind of things do they need help with planning? Everything. Um, it's amazing how much misinformation is out there. A lot of it comes with financial things and legalities. So some of the biggest repeat misinformation that people will say to me as if they believe it as truth is they're a veteran. So the government will pay for everything. No, not true. Um, they're on social security. So social security will pay for everything. No, not true. You know, there's a lot of just financial misinformation of what is covered, what is not covered by anybody. There's very little actually for veterans, which is sad. Social security is a one-time payment to only your spouse. If there's a living spouse of 255, only some states now have governmental help, which is sometimes so nominal. It's not even worth all the hoops to jump through and they can dictate what kind of service and what you do. So there is a lot of restrictions with some of that. A lot of misinformation just about what happens after with estates and things like that. Well, my husband didn't have my name on any of his bank account or his, you know our house or cars, but I'm his wife so I can just sell it all. No, you can't. Like it doesn't transfer because you're married. It doesn't you're not automatically something because of your relationship. If you were not appointed and your name's not on it, you have to go through probate, even if it's your spouse. So, and this might not be the case in every single state. I only know kind of what's here, but there's a lot of logistics, like people not having things in place. Um, One of the biggest things, which I think you're asking me kind of this maybe later, but one of the biggest things I will preach to anybody who listens when it comes to death, which I know this isn't in every arrangement, but I always like to interject this. If you're a parent and you do not have a will in place specifying who you want your kids to be raised by, do it like yesterday because you can die with your significant other and both parents be gone. And no, your mom doesn't get to come in and decide she's raising your kid. The courts get to decide who will raise your child. And so do it, get your paperwork. And I've seen this happen several times now because it's not in place. So I, like when I was four months pregnant, I think my husband and I at the time went and got paperwork in place. I'm like, we're at the point, this kid could be viable any day and still keep living you know, we have to get this in place because I could go into a coma and they could take the baby out and we have to have this done. You know, it was a bit extreme, but because of everything I have seen, we still did it. Um, But it's the biggest lesson I think I have learned along the way is to have your paperwork in order for if something happens, think of, have the conversation with your family, tell them what you want, even if they don't want to listen, 
say, I'm writing this down. Here's my envelope. Go open this as soon as I die. It will tell you what I want because, you know, prearranging is the best gift you can give families by having some funds there, having a plan so they know what you wanted, even if they don't follow it. Yeah, at least they kind of know what you wanted. So some of that is super, super important to do planning ahead, having legal stuff. That's where a lot of really big hurdles come, I think, for people is because you get caught up in the grief of the financials and the grief of the legalities that you don't get to just grieve. And that is the biggest thing I have seen along the way when it comes to even, because it begins in the arrangement, it begins in the planning, it begins in all of that, where all this stuff gets kind of churned up. And then it almost is this weight that overshadows the funeral and the services and everything. Cause they've got this anxiety about all these things or having to come up with the money because, oh, they have insurance. It'll pay. No, it has to be now. Like finances are due up front. Finances are due now. Like we can't wait six months for your estate to go get figured out. It's not how it works. And so a lot of things are shocks to people. And they think that the funeral home is being super cold and super callous because they're making people pay for things. Well, it's a business. Like if you, everybody waited six months to get money in, then how is that funeral home supposed to keep their doors open? Like, it's just a business, how a business is run and the model of how they get their bills paid. And that part is hard, but getting just things in order, having your information about, you know, your bank accounts in one place, your passwords in one place, um, things that, Imagine if you left your house today and never came back. Could someone walk in and find what they needed? Could someone go to your computer and find what they needed? Would they know you had a life insurance policy somewhere? Would they know how to get in touch with who you wanted them to get in touch with? Nobody wants to think that way, but it is a reality every single day for every single person. There is no guarantee for anybody, even me, that, you know, I'm going to come back here today or I'm going to make it till tomorrow or whatever the case, you know, and some people are like, well, what do I care? I'm not going to be here. Love your loved ones enough or whoever's going to be left with things to deal with that they can at least try to start navigating, you know, because the funeral home is going to ask for your social security number. Can your family come into your home, especially if you are a single person, an adult, or, you know, like I'm a single mom now, you know, like, could my family come in my home and find my social security number? And could they find the card? Probably a good thing to ask. It's on your tax paperwork too, which is helpful. Call your tax person. Do you recommend like a booklet, a file, a piece of paper, like in a safe? Like, is there, is there a recommendation for people like me who might just tell my mom, you know? make me a tree where like how do you how do you think people should start that like just have a posted on the fridge with like social security number found in drawer second drawer from the left you know yeah have a if i die file have just a folder that has okay here are where my bank accounts are here is the beneficiary on this go get a will set up and put a copy of it in your medical files you know as a single person just because 
you have parents or you have brothers and sisters doesn't specifically give anyone the right to even make medical decisions if you're in a coma or do, you know, appoint people for these different things that could happen. And any will attorney or, you know, any attorney that can do that stuff is going to navigate you to do all the proper paperwork for that portion. But then also just kind of create a file that has a lot of specifics, like here is my accountant, here is my investment person, here's a list of my passwords, um, you know, and have a file that has all your passwords, or here's my secret stash of cash in my house you can go find, you know, or whatever it may be, because, okay, yeah, eventually your family's going to go through everything in your home as they have to clean it out, but it could take months, it could take weeks, they may not find whatever it is to find, so have that person that your best friend or whoever that, okay, she died, hey, we got to go, like, here's the envelope that you gave to them that has all your stuff or every time I used to travel with my ex-husband, I would write a letter and give it to my parents. So before every time we traveled, here's my letter with all of my updated wishes, wants, where things are at. Here you go. I mean, I have a different perspective, obviously on things than most people, but that preparedness is so key. And also knowing the laws of where you are. We have people who are like, person calls and says, yeah, my brother's at the hospital and we want you to take care of him. He's dead, you know, and um, okay, great. You know, what kind of services are you thinking for your brother? Oh, we want to just cremate him. Okay. Um, well, you know, is he married? Yeah, but they're, they've been estranged. Like they're separated. She has nothing to do with it. It's fine. We're going to take care of it. No. We, we need her. She has to sign for the cremation. Well, they haven't spoken months. Like they just never got divorced and blah, blah, blah. We don't even know where she is. Well, you we better find her because she's the only one who can legally, you know, so knowing next to can rights and who has to be involved and how you can opt out of the next of kin. I mean, people don't all talk to their kids. People don't all talk to their parents and knowing those things to have in place is critical because it can be the biggest roadblock and people get pissed at me. People get pissed at us as the information deliverer because they just believe, Oh, it's, you know, I should get to do this because of who I am or whatever. And it's not the case, unfortunately. Yeah. It sounds like you do a lot um, involving not just like the actual care, but the helping people and families. It's gotta be, a heavy kind of experience and sometimes frustrating, probably a lot of times rewarding as well, getting to honor people's wishes. Um, how has, how have your experiences and how have, you know, what you've learned and what you do, does it challenge or reinforce or has it changed your beliefs involving death or how people feel about death or how you feel about death? I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I, don't know that it has changed. I've always had a fear of death. I've always had a weird, like my mind will go in this like weird place where I start thinking about it and it's like spinning. And I feel this terrifying paralysis and I have to snap myself out of it because I know that there is nothing I can do <laughs> to avoid it. Like it is inevitable we once you're here you ain't avoiding it like it's coming for you no matter what 
no matter how scared you are or not scared. So you kind of have to put it in its place or let it control your life. And I am almost more, I think my fear has gotten bigger as I've grown with, I think it's because of my kids. And I don't know that I'm scared of death. I'm scared of the dying and I'm scared of leaving them. I don't know all the, the questions that are not 110% solidified of where I go. And it doesn't matter if I have my Christian faith, I haven't seen and know for certain what is going on next. So sometimes that, that part I rely on my Christian faith a lot, but that part of it, I'm still a little sketchy on. And people are like, well, but if you have faith and you have faith in everything, I'm like, but I've seen acts of God and I've seen acts of things that I can believe in and have faith in, but I can't, I don't see heaven and I don't see that, you know, I, I haven't seen it. And so that part's a little hard. It is hard to wrap my mind around. It's hard, but it's what I try to hold on and believe in fully with everything else. Um, because you got to believe in something. And I mean, I know like with dead bodies, there is nothing there. Like there is literal, it is a shell of a person. That person is science. Like they are gone. There is no question in my mind, but it's, you know, where did that other part of them go? Did it go somewhere or is it just a void? I don't know. We're going to find out. I'm hoping for, you know, what I believe in, but there's always the alternative. So it's one of those, eh, who knows? So working around death has not squashed my fear of death. I think it has just more put into me the knowledge that it can happen anyway. You can't prevent it. You can only do so much. I am almost a, not a helicopter mom, but it's like, you know, trying to prevent any situation at all times. But like when my, when my niece was killed, um, I had mentally gone through her dying multiple times because to me, it was kind of uh, her father killed her and then killed himself. And for years we knew he was just evil. We couldn't get anybody else to see this. And I mentally prepared for kind of that scenario and then put that plan into action when it actually did happen. And so my theory is if I mentally prepare for all the wrong that could happen, then I will mentally be prepared when it does happen. And it's like, but is that really a good way to live? No. My boyfriend's like, you are the biggest overthinker about literally everything. He said, you don't, you can't sleep because your mind won't stop. I said, it's kind of the, my ADD, I think kicking in too, where my mind's just constantly spinning in a thousand directions about every little thing. And it's like a pachinko machine, just all over the place. But that's part of it, I think is trying to foresee to get ahead of something when we can never get ahead of this, you know, part of our, it's the one thing we can't avoid with overthinking. We can't No, it's, I will never outthink death. I would like to think I can. People are like, so do you want to be buried or cremated? Like, what do you want? And I'm like, none to stay alive forever. <laughs> like that's neither option. None of them. Like, I'm just going to figure out another way. <laughs> Thanks.
Do you think that your job and, and what you do, because you're so it's so present in your daily life that it that it affects, you know, that that it it causes you to think about mortality more because you're seeing, you know, you're seeing people dead bodies and, and you're being part of that process of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, or are you able to disassociate, which I think is a very important component to working in health and death care? Yeah, I say there's a switch. Um, and sometimes it's a very unhealthy switch, like when it comes to our own loss, because you can't turn the switch back on. You would kind of create this kind of numb buffer to the point that you haven't lost your emotion for things and ability to connect with what loss feels like. But then if you have a loss all your own, you don't fully feel it in the same way because you go into funeral director mode almost and you take try to take care of things in funeral director mode. So it is really hard to just be present with loss and to go through grief. I think we have a delayed grief as funeral directors and as professionals who work around things because we you just can't connect with it. If there's so much death around you, you're just like walk by people some days and it's like, what is this? Like, why do we do this? Why do we keep bodies around? And you, I do, I'll step back and go, God, why do we do all this? Why do we go through all this motion sometimes? And why do we, and then you go back on the front side and meet with families. And then you remember kind of why it all happens and stuff. But some days I do, I step back and I'm like, this is really odd that we have, like, there is, I can look at 10 dead people right now. And that's just an odd, odd thing that we're doing or, you know, standing there talking and it's like, no, there's no dead body in the room. Cause you're talking to somebody else, but there's somebody like right there, like, you know, Maud is right there. It's, it's like just another part of the scenery. I don't know. It's weird how kind of that ebb and flow of what we do changes our vision and, and everything. Um, I don't even know if I answered your question. It's a hard question because it makes us like, it makes us realize, you know, if what we're doing every day and where we're putting ourselves in our experiences, like, does it help? Does it hurt? Is it, is it reinforcing our beliefs? Is it, you know, especially people, some people have never seen a dead body. Some people have never touched a dead body. Some people have never toe tagged and body bagged a body. And for me, we see them when the person is not there. The person is gone and it becomes this organic material that will hopefully become fertilizer. And then like you were saying, to be reminded when you go back out to the front that it was somebody's loved one. It was someone's grandpa, father, you know, mother. And although it's just a, a vessel, it's a spiritual kind of like totem of what that person was. So that's I mean, not that I can explain why we keep the bodies around, because that to me is also, I think a lot of human nature and what we do has come from other places. And it's like, what, like, how did we develop to like putting bodies in a hole, you know, and or bare, burning them? And like, at what point were they, did someone decide to leave the body of their Neanderthal cousin instead of leaving them on the ground, they put them under the ground. So it's like, we don't know where it comes from, but I do think it's significant because people get that last little spiritual connection to a body that doesn't exist with the person in it. And we don't see that because we don't see the spirit. We don't see the soul. We see a yellow kind of lumpy kind of swollen drippy kind of person. But yeah, so how does how does what you do affect the way you live? How does it help you in your life? 
I honestly don't know if I have an answer to that because I don't know what life would be like without this perspective. Like it is my whole, everything I do. Like I'm for one, I'm never not working for the most part. And I've kind of done that to myself because I do the funeral directing and go to the funeral home. But then I also now have this online carry the mortician and this, I guess, persona, not persona, because it's literally just me, but it is brand of me as a mortician that is constant. So I'm constantly responding to messages and building programs and lining up videos and editing videos. So I'm constantly working and surrounded by all of this. So I'm never not talking about death or about what we do caring for the dead. And I think sometimes it gets, you get in a rut and you get bored with it, but then people will ask me new questions and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a great question. But then I get to dive in and maybe research something that I am, is not my norm, you know, a culture or a something historically or something that I get to dive into. And I love that. And so it's, it's doing fun things, putting new spins on them. Like one of my video series is victims of crime and me and three other embalmers, we discuss crimes, which I love true crime. Everybody does right now. It just is like the trendiest thing. And so I was like, how can I take what I like and the podcast I listen to and turn it into something so I can do it with my every day. And that was kind of my answer. And we discuss a crime, but not try and figure out the crime per se, but take the body and the condition of that body and what would we do if we were taking care of that body and how would we embalm them how would we do the funeral and that kind of component and so that was kind of a fun spin on it and so it's just recreating maybe things that interest me outside of the funeral business making them funeral relevant and getting to do that and that keeps me excited about the business and teaching you know working with students and trying to help them navigate and do things and it's fun. And I just like, I just started a new sub channel um, because my boyfriend was, a, well, he did burial vaults for 27 years for forever. So I've known him for like 20 years off and on over the years. And then he runs, was the crematory operator has been for like a year, a little over a year. So he's got all this other experience on the other side of things. And then my experience, and I was like, let's do a funner channel. Let's do like cemeteries and ghosts and, you know, just wacky stuff that I can't do on my channel. Because if I wear a baseball cap, I get somebody saying, you're not being professional enough. Or, you know, it's just, you know, trying to deviate a little bit of some stuff. And so we started another channel. And so we get to do a little bit funner things and more, you know, exciting when it comes to like, let's go walk around the cemetery and look at headstones and talk about the ghost story that might be here and try and debunk it and do that kind of thing. So I'm trying to always, I think, reinvent and come up with new, exciting ways to be in the business, but yet not get bored with the business. Awesome. I think that's a great way to channel your like energy and, and your experience and your knowledge into something that you can do to have fun, which death isn't fun, but anything can be interesting and you can get value from it. And I think that's a really cool way to incorporate those things in the way that you live into, you know, more outlets for you to like share with other people. We have to kind of reinvigorate and have new things in our life and have hobbies and find joy and have fun in the workplace. Like we have fun at funeral homes. It's, we can't be stuffy all the time. Like we, 
laugh a lot. And How dare you smile? How dare you enjoy what you do? You're not allowed. <laughs> As a nurse, people say the same thing to me. They're like, it's a serious place. I'm like, if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry. So pick, would you rather have care from a nurse that's giggling or bawling on you? <laughs> your choice, your choice. Yeah, I can, I can go either way for me. I'd be happy to cry and sob right on your shoulder while trying to start an IV. <laughs> and for our last question, um, if you could leave the listener with one tidbit, one piece of advice, or just something to think about, it doesn't have to be related to your career. What would it be? Live a way that you are trying for longevity, but you're also enjoying life because I am always like, I'm going to eat the cookie. I'm going to have the beer just in moderation because I've seen too often how many people are driven in one direction because they believe that this healthy choice is going to be and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, they never smoked and they died of lung cancer. You know, it can happen. These are, this is not something that you can avoid just because you avoid one thing. So I guess that might be a, that might be what I say is, is, is drink the beer, eat the cookie. That'll be my, I need a t-shirt that says that. Uh, yeah, that's my motto. <laughs> I'm 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 gonna sign up for that because <laughs> I already do that. So I want it to be <laughs> a positive thing. But well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Yeah, so Carrie the Mortician, very simple, K-A-R-I, the Mortician on um YouTube. You can find my video like 800 plus videos, which is insane. Um on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. I just started the TikTok. I'm feeling pretty old on the TikTok, but I figured I would give it a whirl just to see what it was about. And it's challenging, but it's fun, you know, lose hours of my day once in a while to try to go down the rabbit hole, but it's interesting to figure, I don't know, just to see what is trending with the world in some ways. So some of it's fun. Other times I don't get it. And I'm, I think I'm still pretty young, but there's times where I'm like, I don't, I don't get what the kids are doing, but I guess I'm going to try that trend <laughs> except for dancing. <laughs> I don't, that's, I, I would rather, I'm, I'm like, I need to just do those videos because that would be way more fun than, you know, trying to do other calculated and educational. And I'm like, can I just dance? Dance in and... a casket. That would be cool. I would, I would like that. Oh I would, gosh. I would subscribe to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carrie. Well, thanks again. I really oh. appreciated this and the conversation was amazing. I learned so much and now I'm going to start writing out a plan <laughs> and my passwords because I definitely want my family to be able to grieve instead of have to plan and grieve. There is not enough space for both. So if I can make it easier for them, then that is what's most important. And that's a big takeaway. Love that. Carrie, Love thank that. you so much. Awesome. And I hope we chat again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Whoa, what an episode. Getting to chat with Carrie was so enlightening for me because I learned so many things. I learned what's the most appropriate way to dispose of a human body and that most of the time when people are spreading ashes, it's kind of illegal. I also learned that although I can't be buried in a pod beneath a tree because that doesn't technically exist, I can have my ashes pressed into a diamond to be passed down to generations after me. I want to thank Carrie for all of the useful information that she provided in today's episode. And I'm probably going to get started on the If I Die folder and leave it somewhere with a big post note that says, Hey, 
If I die, read me and include all of my passwords, banking information, and anything that might be pertinent. So that way, if something happens to me and I meet an untimely death, at least my family will be able to focus more so on the grieving than the planning aspect. And I think that's a really important takeaway from today's episode. Once again, quickly, if you enjoyed today's episode, please give me a review and a rating, and also be sure to follow us on social media. You can find me at Embracing Death Podcast on Instagram, Embracing Death Podcast on YouTube, and Embracing Death on the TikTok. Hopefully, we'll start creating some more content for you soon. And remember, I want to hear from you. If you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death or mortality, please send me an email at embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com for your story to be featured. Thank you for listening to Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. And the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we still have yet to live. And as Queen Elizabeth II said, grief is the price we pay for love. We will see you next week.